Welcome to the Safe Passage for Children of Minnesota podcast. Safe Passage for Children's mission is to ensure that Minnesota has a child welfare system in which children are safe and can reach their full potential. This series of episodes will take a closer look at our short weekly policy blog, or eBrief, to give you an inside look into Minnesota child welfare legislation, policies, and practices happening right now in Minnesota affecting abused and neglected children, as well as those who work with or care for them. It is our goal that this podcast is educational, informative, and bold, increasing collective knowledge on these issues, as well as raising our voice to speak up for the needs and the safety of vulnerable Minnesota children. If you know someone who cares about children, be sure to share this podcast with them. Stick around for this week's eBrief podcast episode featuring Safe Passage for Children's Executive Director, Rich German. So the Safe Passage blog for Friday, October 15th is entitled again, Public Policy Goals Should Be Decided Democratically. In 2011, Casey Family Programs unilaterally established a national goal to safety, safely reduce the number of children in foster care by 50%. Since then, they have spent $193.1 million to promote this and their related objectives, and that includes $5.3 million in Minnesota. But how do we know when foster care can be avoided safely and is 50% the right number? To answer that, we would need to know which children who otherwise would have gone into foster care were diverted from the system and whether they remained safe. But no such data exists. So numerical goals that can't be empirically tested don't make for good policy or good science. Public policy goals should be set through democratic processes, not by private foundations, and should be designed so their effectiveness can be verified by research. So what prompted me to write on this topic today was that I'm in the throes of writing an article for the Law Review at Mitchell Hammond Law School which includes a a critique of some of the so-called research that has been done to support alternative response programs in states or, as it is known in Minnesota, family assessment. In the article, I also explore family preservation, which is the preference for keeping children in intact families whenever possible or returning them home from foster care as quickly as possible. I applied this research, uh, this approach, to the foster care goals promoted by Casey Family Foundation, which, as many of you know, is a large foundation based in Seattle and which invests most of its investment earnings in child welfare. So one major area that Casey Investment is alternative response, which at its peak was operating in about 35 states. And if you're not familiar, alternative response or here family assessment is basically a group of practices in child protection, whereas family preservation is more of a philosophy to keep children with their bio parents. Family assessment and its counterparts in other states is basically designed to keep families from getting into child protection. And that's in part as a way to reduce racial disproportionality in the system. The kind of practices to accomplish that include 
not looking at past cases when deciding whether to screen in a new maltreatment report, and not checking the information gathered from the report with collateral contacts like teachers and child care workers. Both of these particular practices are no longer being done in Minnesota because in this state, we got legislation passed to stop it. But a lot of practices are still operating, and they include what is called whole family interviewing. This means that children are interviewed about the alleged maltreatment in the presence of the people who are accused of harming them. Another family assessment practice is giving three to five days advance notice that the child protection visit is about to happen. So, obviously, this gives the adults in the household plenty of time to coach the child about what to say and intimidate them into compliance. Another practice is deliberately not doing fact-finding, not asking difficult questions from, of the parents. And finally, if something does get discovered in the family assessment process, not putting that information in the case note so the next worker down the road will be flying blind, but only instead recording simply whether services were provided and if any risk assessment was done. The cumulative impact of these practices is to not find out any information that is critically needed to decide if the child is okay. And it has the result that many cases are closed prematurely and parents are left to follow up on getting services voluntarily, which they overwhelmingly do not do. And also because of these practices, we are seeing one child murdered by their caregivers in Minnesota every six or seven weeks. A close look at the case files of these murdered children will show that most of the situations were preventable because there were just not red flags in the cases, but flashing red lights and car alarms going off. So what has this got to do now with family, uh, family, Casey family programs is simply that they are the drivers of these practices. There's no one else injecting large amounts of flexible money into states to promote Casey's point of view or this child welfare point of view. And their intent, as stated, is in part to keep black, indigenous, and persons of color or BIPOC families out of the system as a way to address racial disparities in child welfare, which is a noble goal, but the way they have gone about it has been catastrophic for children. So one particular concern I want to discuss is to ask, how is it that one extremely wealthy foundation has come to essentially drive the public policy in this country around child welfare? I think the answer to that is pretty simple. Nobody else has that kind of money that they're making available to states or the kinds of trainers and policy specialists that they can deploy to sell their point of view. But a second concern I have is what basis do they have for asserting their policy claims? Regarding family assessment, for example, there is literature largely inspired by progressives in the Casey camp, their sphere of influence, that essentially says that child welfare workers are bad people and that they are arrogant and disrespectful of their clients and clueless about culture. Now, I've been in the field for many years and I've not met many caseworkers who fit that description. They're essentially competent people. They care. And it makes one wonder what caseworkers, Casey and, and their uh, other associates who promote this point of view are actually in contact with. Is that really in this country? Who, who are they talking to? And the people who paint this negative picture of caseworkers have never actually provided any evidence to support it. I recommend that you read some of Ronald Hughes and Judith Rikus's writings on this. 
All these people have merely asserted it as an article of faith, which they expect people to buy into. And again, I also refer you to the writings of Elizabeth Bartholet at Harvard Law School for the thorough discussion of this issue as well. Well, a similar goal is the one to safely reduce the number of children in foster care. It was announced in 2007 as a major policy goal by Casey to be reached by 2020. Now, the number of children in foster care is roughly the same now as in 2020, a little over 400,000 children. But that's not the main point here. The concern here is that the assertion that foster care is bad isn't supported. It's portrayed not just as an unfortunate necessary in certain extreme cases or that it's traumatic and to be avoided if possible, but that foster care is somehow inherently bad and by inference that keeping children with their bio parents is virtually always the best option. Of course, this doesn't work out so well for the children who are getting killed by their bio parents. As a related example, their sister organization, the Annie E. Casey Foundation, has used its large financial resources to promote the recently passed Federal Families First Act, which, among other things, has restricted funding for foster care and virtually eliminated it for group homes and nearly eliminated it for residential treatment. Never mind that some children actually need these kinds of services at some points in their life, and where are they going to get them? And again, this policy is based on an unsupported assertion that foster care is essentially bad, and people are accepting that as an article of faith. So my concern is to ask, first of all, what right do the cases have to be effectively deciding what our national child welfare policies, practices, and goals should be? Shouldn't that be the job of our state and federal elected officials and of professionals who are in the business and who, by the way, are accountable for outcomes? And what the Casey's are doing, in effect, sadly, is promoting an ideological agenda, not a scientific or research-based one, that has been undemocratically imposed on all of us, particularly children. And the other part of this discussion is that the Casey vision is not based on good research, but is essentially a partisan or ideological viewpoint that's promoted through articles that appeared to be scientific. For example... As I mentioned, a goal of reducing foster care by 50% should not be based on an assumption that foster care is bad. There should be some empirical evidence to back that up. Specifically, someone needs to do something like this to design a program that can be tested scientifically. Uh, first, you would have to have a working hypothesis that children who would, under existing practices, be going to foster care and then design a program or some other service to intervene there and to try to make that unnecessary and then test the results to see, for example, if there were fewer children who were re-reported for abuse, fewer that were killed, or less trauma as indicated by a validated psychological instrument. That's the kind of thing you should be doing. In the article I mentioned, there is a section that applies to this situation from the writings of the 20th century, century philosopher of science named Karl Popper. That's Karl with a K. Now, I'm not holding myself out to be some sort of a great intellectual who is deeply immersed in the philosophy of science, but I have a daughter who is, and she's a philosophy professor at the University of Tennessee, and we've worked this over, so I feel on solid ground here in describing how Popper proposed to determine whether a theory was scientifically supported. And the main criteria he used was whether the theory is what he calls falsifiable. 
And by this, he meant that it had to be designed such that you could run an experiment against it to see if it held up and if it was true. So what I just mentioned about safely keeping children out of foster care is an example of that kind of a project. None of the major initiatives driven by the two cases have this feature. Now, Casey Family Programs will tell you that family assessment is evidence-based, but that's based on evaluations of the program that were done in five states, all by the same small consulting group and all paid for by Casey. That's a pretty strong conflict of interest. I mean, it's very similar to having tobacco companies pay for someone who has scientific credentials to write a paper saying that tobacco is good for your health. So I submit it's pretty hard to overcome this problem by itself with those evaluations. But in addition, these Casey-funded evaluations have drawn criticism from some of the best-known and best-respected academics and researchers in the child welfare field, people like Ronald Hughes, Judith Rikus, Viola Vaughn Eden, Frank Vandervoort, and Elizabeth Bartholet. And all of them have said that these evaluations are deeply methodologically flawed and are just simply partisan arguments or public relations articles. So I think, and here is the takeaway, that in order to make child welfare safe for children again, we need to start pushing back on the dominance of the Casey Foundations and deciding what our national child welfare policies and practices should be. And we also need to insist that from now on, policy directives should be based on good research and science and not on ideological agendas. Well, with that, I want to thank you, Rich, for sharing your time and your expertise on these issues. Again, if you know someone who cares about children, be sure to share this podcast with them. Until next time, this is Safe Passage for Children of Minnesota, working to ensure that Minnesota has a child welfare system in which children are safe and can reach their full potential. If you would like to learn more about Safe Passage for Children of Minnesota, please visit us on our website at safepassageforchildren.org. There you can sign up for our email list, read all of our eBrief blog posts, register for our free bi-monthly webinars, watch our featured videos, and more. You can also follow Safe Passage for Children of Minnesota on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, and LinkedIn.